0: The 47th psalm. Now this is uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue, subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together. The people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Now I'd like to read you our sermon text, which is Genesis 42, verses 1 through 17. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all together in prison three days. Now I want to tell you in advance that today's sermon has no logical ending. It's a part of a greater picture, which is going to take about seven or eight sermons to get through for you to grasp what is really going on. But I'm going to do my very best to make it interesting during the process. But remember that when we kind of stop abruptly, it's simply because that's where this particular passage does stop. But as we go through these things, it will become clearer and clearer what God is doing and what he is picturing. And it is really astonishing stuff. Symbolism is used throughout the entire Bible as a common way of teaching us spiritual truths. The elements, such as fire, water, wind, and earth, each of these point to an individual spiritual truth. Trees, grain, bread, rocks, rivers, mountains, and so on, all of these things are used by God to reveal spiritual truths from a perspective which we can understand. He's the creator He is a spirit, God is spirit, the Bible says. And so what he has done is he has created a physical world for us to perceive around us. And he uses the things that we see in this physical world in a way that is consistent in the Bible so that we can understand him from his creation. Light and darkness do this, for example. Types of metal. If you know what metal symbolizes in the Bible, it's consistent all the way through the Bible. Brass will do the same thing. You have the times of the day. 3 p.m. in the Bible usually points to the same thing. I shouldn't say usually it does. God is using 3 p.m. in the Bible for a reason, to teach us something. All of these things are used in a harmonious fashion to reveal other truths to us. Some are very easy for us to see, and others are hidden in such deep little recesses that they can be easily misunderstood or they can be misused. However... If you know the overall contents of the Bible, it is much easier to avoid error when you're evaluating these metaphors and other types of symbolism. There is this cohesive overall message, and each symbol is going to consistently reflect the intention of this message. So the question is, do you know what yeast symbolizes? It's consistent all the way through the Bible. How about the number seven? God gives us the number seven, and he uses it consistently all the way through the Pages of the Bible, as he does with every other number that you see. How about incense? Now I'll tell you that the Bible explicitly tells you what incense means in the book of Revelation. So we don't need to guess what God is telling us. He tells us, and so we can go back and we can use that explicit uh interpretation to know what he's talking about anytime incense is mentioned, all the way through the Bible. When you see things like this, a tree or whatever, make a note of it. Make a mental note as you read, because God is asking us to pay attention. They didn't throw in a lot of unnecessary detail when he gave us this book. Instead, he uses every single word as a wonderful display of wisdom and direction for us to grasp and then to follow. Now, I have a text verse for you today, which comes from Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, Gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. The day of the Lord is not something that's really easy to define in the Bible. It's used quite often to describe calamities of the past. But it's also used for the final great time of judgment on earth, which will be a earth which is so far removed from God that his judgment is the only option that's left. When the tribulation period comes, it will also be, though, a time of renewal for his people Israel. They will be purified through the day of the Lord before they call on him and before he returns to them. And this is not mere speculation or one possible analysis of what may happen. You know, we've got some theologians that say that Israel's out and the church has replaced Israel. That is not right. This is not speculation. This is what will happen. And God has given us pictures of it in the book of Genesis to confirm that Israel has not been abandoned and the church has not replaced her. That's why he gave us the book of Genesis is to unveil what he's going to do all the way through human history. Now, sometimes figuring these things out takes really, really hard work, but it is in the hard work that those rewards come out the most. So together, let's get back into the life of Joseph and earnestly seek to see the work, what God has done and what he has placed there in this book for us to see. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Now I have three thoughts for you today. The first is grain in Egypt. This is verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. So here we begin chapter 42 with Jacob and his family in the distress of the famine which is swept throughout the land. He has not been mentioned, get this, since chapter 37 when his sons brought to him the coat of Joseph which had been dipped in blood. That was 11 sermons ago. We have not heard about Jacob at all. He's now reintroduced into the story as the leader of the clan, but he is not the center of focus. It says that he saw that there was grain in Egypt. This immediately shows us that everything is governed by God in his providential care for his people. Here he is. He's sitting up in Canaan, not Egypt, and yet it says he sees that there is grain in Egypt. This means that someone told him about it as he passed through. For all we know, it could have been the same group of traders. and this is Charlie liking to speculate on things, it could have been the same group of traders who once carried his son Joseph down to Egypt. By hearing about the grain from them, or whoever it is that tells him, he sees that there is grain down in Egypt. This is a very common mode of the Bible where it uses the action of one thing in the place of another. In this case, that of hearing from the people who obtain the grain is used in the terminology applied to Jacob as if he sees the grain. But I want you to know something. A very unusual word for grain is used here. The word is shever, and it comes from a word which I was a little perplexed about what was going on in this as I was typing the sermon. All right, I see the word shever, and then another word is going to be used later, bar. And I th- I was studying it and I was certain in myself that these words are not being used synonymously. They're both translated as grain. And so I called my friend Sergio over here and he was with his wife and I said, you know, I want you to confirm this because he's from Israel, he speaks Hebrew and I want to make sure that what I'm thinking is appropriate so I can continue down the line of the sermon without making an error. So I called Sergio and I said, there is this word shever. And before I even had a chance to explain what I was going to say, he that it means to break and that's what the Bible says and he knew this connotation immediately the idea is that either a kernel of grain is broken to get out the grain or that the earth is broken up and the grain uh, that you know that the plant sprouts out of the earth now this word is used only nine times in the entire Bible the first seven of those times are in this account about Joseph during these sermons that we're going to be looking at the other two are in Nehemiah and in the book of Amos, and both are used in connection with the Sabbath day, okay? So you want to think of the word, this is just a memory tool for you, the word break, shever, and is being used in connection with the Sabbath day. So think of breaking the Sabbath, okay? In the New Testament, we come across this account about Jesus, his disciples, and grain on the Sabbath. It says in Matthew chapter 12, at that time, Jesus went through the fields, grain fields on the Sabbath, And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So there you go, a connection for a breaking the Sabbath by breaking grain. Verse one continues. Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? The picture here is one of absolute misery. There's nothing to do. There are no fields to plow and there's only heat and misery from this famine. In the case of this particular picture that we can get in our head, sitting around and looking at each other seems all that you can do. It is life in a rut, and is one without hope, and one without direction. That's what we're seeing in this verse right here. And I'm going to give you an example of this that I see every single week, and quite a few people have gone with me on a Saturday and seen this. Go down to the, the projects in Sarasota, and I do this every week of my life, unless I can't go but we've been doing this six years and the three of us there's a a core team of three have never missed a weekend in all six years not one weekend so we go down there and we see people that are in a rut and it's exactly what you see in this picture right here if they sit there with their hands folded on a chair on the stoop of their house and you know one of them might say we need a a couch and so one of the gentlemen is very good about acquiring furniture People will give him furniture and he takes it down there. And he remembers who needs what. And they are so in a rut, and I mean this literally, that we will have a couch and we'll be walking it up to the door and they won't even get out of that chair to open the door. Hmm. They are in that much of a rut that they can't even, it's like the, uh, the proverb that says that the lazy man puts his hand into the bowl and he won't bring it back to his mouth. And that is life in a rut. And that's what these guys are in right here. They, they can't see anywhere beyond their own situation. And I have to tell you this. This is a self-inflicted wound for the most part down in the projects. Because people get money from the government. And then they figure, well, I don't need to do anything in order to get money from the government. And then the government perpetrates it more by giving them a little more or this benefit or that benefit. And it becomes bondage to them. That is life in a rut. And there is a point where we have to actually stand up and say, I am going to earn my own way in life. And that's what we see in the verse that's coming right now, verse two. And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. This verse now explains the previous one. Jacob didn't actually see the grain in Egypt. He heard about it, but he perceived it with his mind's eye, all right? He now perceives this glimmer of hope in the prospect of eating a full meal once again. And so in that hope, he directs the sons to head to Egypt so that they may live and not die. The second verse right here once again uses this word shever for grain. Jacob is telling them to go buy it for the family to keep them alive. And this is more important than one might realize while flipping real quickly through the pages of the Bible as you read a story like this. A famine is not something that just affects people in the short term. If it were to start raining that day on Jacob's head, it would still be one full season before food would start coming up out of the ground in usable quantities. Other than grass for animals, which comes up much more quickly, the Straits would not go away without action at this time. And that is exactly the picture that we can apply to our own lives in knowing the Bible. If you don't know the Bible now, when the future famine comes guess what's going to happen? You're going to be sitting there without any direction from the Lord, and even if you pick up the Bible and say, I want to seek the Lord's face because I'm in this dire straits in my life, right? I'm going to to see what God wants. It's going to take you that full year to know what God is trying to tell you because the Bible is not a simple book to read. You don't just pick it up and suddenly get inspiration out of it. You have to start reading it, and you have to start feeding on it every single day. I will tell you again, as I've said this several times, when I started reading the Bible, I never talked to anybody about Jesus. I just sat in the back of my store right down the road here, and I read it every single day, 10 hours a day, and I would complete it in a week. And then I'd start reading it again. And for two full years, I did this. That's how I read the Bible, that, that early time of my coming to Christ. And I will tell you that after about a year and a half, I'd read the Bible, you know, how many times? You do the math. And I was over at uh, the, uh, where my children were going to school. And there was also a church there. And the pastor walked up and he asked if I knew the Lord, and I said, "Yes." He turned away from me and he said, "Do you uh know the Lord to my wife?" and she said, "No, it hasn't hit my uh, uh hasn't hit me like it's hit my husband okay now I'd been married to this woman all these years, and I'd come to Christ, and I had no idea how to tell her about Jesus Christ, even though I'd read the Bible you know how many times, and I had to sit and watch somebody else take those verses and apply them in a way that she could understand who Jesus Christ is. And how to accept him, And seven minutes later, she's in the kingdom of God. She's accepted the Lord. And I'm sitting there saying, I just learned how to apply what I've read. And that's what we're seeing here. These people are sitting here in a rut. Now they've got to go down and buy food. Because even if it starts raining today, they will not be ready when the rains do come. It'll be another year before that grain is mature. So please, if anything that you get from me, and I say it week after week, read your Bible. Because there is a famine coming. And after the famine has started, it's going to be a long time for you even to be able to use the food that you were assimilating unless you start it now. Okay? That's my little pitch for you to read your Bible today. Which, you know, you hear it from me every week. In the Bible, there is spiritual food to satisfy. Grain in abundance to fill our weary soul. So may we daily this wonderful word apply. And our lives will stay content. Filled and always in control. Verse 3. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Note what it said here. I want to read this to you again. Listen carefully. So Joseph's ten brothers. Jacob is not the focus here. Joseph is. He's the one that pictures Christ. And he is the one to whom the brothers are accountable for. For having sold him all those years ago. And so Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain. One brother is left, as we're going to have explained to us in just a minute. But a different word for grain is used here. It is not shever, but bar. And you would never get this in the English. The word comes from another word, which is barar. It means to purify, to select, or to test. And if that doesn't sound like what is going on with these brothers, they're being purified and they're being tested before (laughs) Joseph reveals himself to them. That's exactly what we're seeing here. So it is probably, this barar, or this bar, this type of grain, is probably threshed and winnowed grain as opposed to grain which is in the shell. Threshing and winnowing is a process of separating the grain from the scaly, inedible chaff that surrounds it. The grain is threshed to break the scale, and then it is winnowed by throwing it up into the air. And you have this light breeze going by, and what happens? The heavy grain falls back down into a nice pile, and the chaff floats away that's what winnowing is okay thus the grain is purified so you see there is something going on with these words and God isn't using different words for no reason at all he's picked these words very specifically for us to learn from the process for various grains and processing it into a state of purification is described in a beautiful picture of their purification from Isaiah chapter 28 so listen to what it says here now, he's going to ask some rhetorical questions as he goes along. He says, Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? The question is, does the guy just keep plowing forever? Well, the answer is no. Okay. When he is leveled at surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin? Well, the answer is yes. Now I've plowed. I've got the fields ready. Now it's time to put the uh, the grain into the ground. Plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place. He's saying this is how wheat is planted. It's not just scattered out like this. It's put into rows. And then you take that in its own place, and you've got the barley in its own place, and you put spelt here. Now, under the law, you're not allowed to mix any types of grain. That's that's a prohibition, but it wouldn't make sense to do it anyway, having spelt growing up with barley. It would be a bad source of business. So he's instructing us in his word about these things. He goes on, For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black human is not threshed with a threshing sledge. Well, a threshing sledge is something that's behind a donkey or behind a mule or whatever. And maybe the guy would stand on it and ride around and it will crush the grain. That's what we're talking about. First you uh, thresh it and then you winnow it. Okay. He says that the cumin isn't done that way. Because if you do, you're going to crush the grain along with the scale because it's a a lighter type of grain. He says, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But black cumin is beaten out with a stick. You've got to be more gentle with it. And the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever. The guy doesn't just ride around on his donkey behind the, uh, you know, threshing forever. There's a point where you stop, and then you winnow it. And after it's winnowed, it's purified, and then you take it and you drop it into the grinder, and the woman grinds it, which is described elsewhere in the Bible, all right? And he goes on, he says, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance from the mind of god comes the grain and from the mind of god he instills in man the ability to do these things to to multiply grain and to have a great harvest and that's what he's saying right here and then in zephaniah 3 in the ninth verse the word barar which is where the word bar or purified grain comes from is used speaking of the language of the people being purified And this has happened during our lifetime, and it continues to happen in the nation of Israel. It says there, for then I will restore to the peoples a pure language. Now remember, 2,000 years, Israel did not speak Hebrew. The only Hebrew was in the synagogues, and nobody spoke it. They spoke whatever language they were speaking at the time. My friends here, one of them is from, uh, his family is from Russia. Well, they spoke Russian up there. They made Aliyah down into Israel. And when they arrived in Israel, what did they teach you in the school? When you, were in, uh, uh, when you went to school in Israel, did you, they teach you Russian? No. What language did they teach you? Hebrew. Hebrew. The language is being purified, according to Zephaniah, in our lifetime. So that these people will... Why? Here's what he says. That they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. God is preparing his people. Prophesied in the book of Zephaniah, pictured... In the book of Genesis. And so that you can, you can see that there's a contrast between these grains, shever and bar, and that they're not being used synonymously, both types of grain. Bar and shever are used in one verse from Amos 8. It's the third verse. Listen to this. When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain, shever, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, bar, making the epaw small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit? So he even throws in a little rhyme for us in the Amos 8. It's wonderful. If you were here last week, you may remember, because I quoted a large portion of of Amos 8. It was that passage which referred to the famine for the word of God, and it's used in symbolism, the swelling and the subsiding of the Nile River, just as we're seeing in the book of Genesis. It is not coincidence that the same chapter and passage Mention both grains that are mentioned now in this passage of Genesis. God is showing us these things very carefully and very meticulously throughout the pages of the Bible. Now, from chapter 42 through chapter 45, these two words, shever and bar, are going to be used nine times. Shever six times and bar three times, and each time they're used, I'm going to try to remember to mention to you it in that context so that you can keep analyzing what's going on and maybe find out even before i tell you what god is telling us after the last time they're used i'm going to try to explain the entire thing each word is used very carefully and methodically to point to something else which is concerning israel and it is future to us right now to help you i want you to remember that jesus uses the grain as in a parable of the sower if you remember the parable of the sower he sows some here and some here in mark chapter 4 If you read that now, you may get a better picture of what God is trying to tell us in this passage about Joseph in Genesis. Now, I'm not going to quote that today, but I will quote it in a future sermon. All right? The symbolism is perfectly clear if you can make this connection. And so you can get a spiritual picture of other agricultural metaphors that God is using. Listen to what John the Baptist says concerning the winnowing process in Matthew chapter 3. Okay? This is speaking of God's judgment. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance... But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So that you see he's using all the way through the Bible, very consistently, these metaphors so that we don't make the error of Bad theology. He's being very meticulous about this. Now, to help you think all of this through, remember that Joseph is picturing Christ. He was sold off to the Gentiles, just as Jesus was betrayed by the Jews and sold off to the Gentile nations. The brothers picture Israel. They are going down to get grain from Egypt where they will meet Joseph. Israel will eventually again meet Jesus. The symbolism is absolutely clear here. The grain is the word of God. Jesus tells us that explicitly, all right? And all of this is happening during the seven years of famine at Joseph's time. These picture the seven years of tribulation, which are coming in the future, the day of the Lord we mentioned earlier. Now, as we continue along, you have to try to keep these pictures in mind. Israel, Israel, it is all pointing to Israel after the church age and their divinely appointed meeting with their long estranged Messiah. God is showing us in Genesis, so we don't err now, and we can see what's coming in the future. These 10 sons are going down to Egypt together for probably a few reasons, okay? The first would be for safety. As a group, they're much less likely to get robbed. Also, grain is probably, we don't know this, but it's probably sold by the individual, and so 10 individuals can buy for 10 families. And finally, even if somebody could go down and purchase any amount of grain, They're taking their servants, and along with them, they can carry much more than just one person. So this is why God is orchestrating the way he is for our future pictures. He's making sure that all 10 go down right now. Verse 4, But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. Jacob lost his favorite boy Joseph. Benjamin is the only son left from Rachel. All right? And so he is the only connection to this most important part of his life. And because of this, and in order to spare him from any more possible mishap, he keeps Benjamin at home. And he uses a word here that indicates some sort of personal injury. Whatever could happen, he is going to do his very best to keep it from happening. The journey is going to have to be made without Benjamin. But I want you to remember, and I want you to keep this in your mind as we go through these sermons, that Benjamin also pictures Christ in another way. That's very important that you remember this. His name means son of the right hand. And I have been going through these sermons. I type them about seven in advance. And this week I typed Genesis 1 through 17. And when I got there, it all made sense. It is astonishing. So if you go read those passages today, Genesis 1 through 17, you're gonna see that they go down there and they have a meal and then they leave their brother and Joseph takes a cup and he sticks it into the grain of Benjamin. Okay, And then they have to come back and they have to face Joseph again because supposedly Benjamin stole the cup. What is that cup pointing to? I'm going to tell you what, it is astonishing. It is astonishing what God is showing us in the future, which is going to happen in Jesus Christ and then which is going to happen even 2,000 years after that in the nation of Israel when Christ returns to them. And it is all given to us right here in the book of Foundations. Verse 5, Then the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. It's apparent that this famine was very widespread because there were other travelers that were heading down to Egypt with the brothers. There are other recorded famines in the book of Genesis, but they were localized. This one covers the entire land. And if it wasn't so, there would have been no need for the family to go all the way down to Egypt. Instead, they could have gotten something closer by. You know, they could have gone over to Moab or maybe they could have gone over to Syria or whatever. But they are going down there. Because there's this famine that covers all of the land. God has ensured that there would be a need to travel specifically to Egypt for a divine meeting with the son who had been appointed the leader of all of the land. And what is more probable, although it's not stated here, is that there were more from Jacob's clan than just the ten sons that went. In the camp you had servants, you had sisters, you had grandchildren, and so on. And this camp could have been up in the thousands. Why do I say that? Because Abraham, many, many years earlier, had 318 trained men of war that went off to fight a battle. And they left all the rest of the camp there, which implies a camp of at least a 1,000, if not more. Isaac inherited that, and he acquired more wealth in the process, much more. And then after that, Jacob acquired much wealth up in Mesopotamia. He came down into the land, and then he inherited Isaac's camp. So there is this very large camp of people that are dependent on these 10 sons and probably many servants that went along with them. Our second thought today, the governor of the land, this is verses 6 through 9, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. Joseph is called the governor. The term in Hebrew is shalit, and it is where the Arabic word that we know as sultan comes from. Some believe that they adopted the title of sultan because of the example of Joseph in this story. He is the premier example of such a position. He is the one who domineers and has mastery over others. In this case, he is the one who has been placed in charge of the sale of the grain to all the people of the land. Verse six continues, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now, this would have been the customary greeting of anybody who was gonna come before Joseph for food because of his position and because of his ability, which at this point literally controlled life and death. When a customer came forward, they would bow right to the earth in a sign of submission. Without his favor and the sale of the grain, they couldn't exist. Or they would have to go and pay exorbitant fees to someone who already had bought grain. And so the brothers came like everybody else, humbly submitting for their sake and for the sake of their families. Verse seven, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and he spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now it's been 20 years since the brother saw Joseph. He was 17 years old when he was sold by them. He was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. That means that there was 13 years there. There were seven years of abundance before the famine started. So that comes to 20 full years. And it's probably more than a year since that because they're now out of grain. So they had a year of supplies. It's probably by the time he reveals himself to his brothers, uh, Well, we know from a passage that's coming that it will be two full years when he reveals himself to his brothers. And so right now it's probably between 21 and 22 years of Joseph having not been seen by them. He would be clean shaven and he'd be wearing the garments of an Egyptian. And further, the brothers would never look directly at him as a sign of respect. And along with this, he's going to speak to them through an interpreter. We're going to see this later in uh, verse 23. And so because of these things, it is not at all improbable that they won't recognize him. There is nothing in the account to suggest that this is impossible. So a lot of commentators like to say, well, this is just not reality. They would have recognized him. And you get a comment like that in your Bible, get a big red X and put it through it. Because everything speaks to the fact that they would not have recognized him. Everything. They would have no idea who they're talking to. And in this position as a stranger, it says he spoke roughly to them. This was not Joseph being a vindictive person because of what they'd done in the past. It was to see if they were repentant in their hearts about what they had done or not. He's gonna use this harsh demeanor towards them to find out the case of their hearts, all right? In 2 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul wrote about this very attitude. He said this, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. So you think these brothers. If they're repentant, they're going to be saved. He's called the savior of the world by uh, Pharaoh, giving him the name naf Pa'anea. As we discovered, it was translated into the Latin Salvator Mundi, the savior of the world. And that's what Paul is speaking about. This godly sorrow leads to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. In this position, then, and accompanied by his rough manner, He asked them where they're from, and their response is from Canaan. Verse 8. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. He probably knew who they were immediately. As soon as he saw them, he knew this. And when they bowed to him, the memory of the dream may have come right to mind. However, I want you to know that this is not the fulfillment of the dream that he had, where the 11 sheaves bowed to his sheaves. There are 10 brothers here. They're not 11, so this is not the fulfillment of that dream. Once he heard them speak, though, he would be absolutely certain who they were. They said they're from Canaan, and their voices could not conceal what the many years may have hidden in their faces. Verse 9. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. Now, this says what is already certain to us Joseph remembered the dreams. It doesn't mean that he suddenly remembered the dreams, but he remembered the substance of the dreams, because there were 11 sons in the dream not 10. In other words, the dreams would have come to mind right away as soon as he saw him. But the fact that Benjamin is not there again recalls them to mind. And so he sets up a pretext in order to find out about Benjamin. Back in Genesis 37, verse 3, it said these words, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. As we saw at that time, the Hebrew literally says that he was a son of old age to him. What this probably means is that he is a wise son. It's not speaking of Jacob's advanced physical age so much as it's speaking of Joseph's advanced mental age. He has wisdom beyond his years. And the wisdom has grown with age, and he is now using it to bring about the truth of the situation between him and his brothers. He's looking for repentance of those brothers, and he's looking for deliverance of his own family. Okay? If that doesn't speak of Jesus right there, and his future dealings with the nation of Israel, I can't think of what would. It is all leading to that point in human history where they will finally acknowledge him. The events here only look forward to that great day. Every single thing that has happened, you know, we look at America and we say, what a great country we are, when I am certain that God established America, not for the sake of America, but for the sake of protecting the Jews until they would be brought back into the land of Israel. We've been a haven for them. We've protected them. We've allowed them to grow as a nation. And now we're starting to depart from the Lord and Israel's beginning to be the focus again. Now, I love this nation, but I have to tell you what, that when the rapture happens, this nation has got no bearing in God's plans. It is all about this group of people. And that's what we need to remember. And we can see how God is unfolding this in human history, to meet this final end right there. Verse nine continues, and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. His reason for holding them in jail is this verse right here. He calls them spies. And by doing so, it will justify how he deals with them. The term spies here is the Hebrew word meragalim. It's a word which means to go about on foot. He says that they've come to see the nakedness of the land. Well, this is what spies do. They go about on foot and they look for vulnerabilities in the cities. They look for vulnerabilities in their infrastructure and they do so in the military and in any other way that would allow their allies to conduct battle against them. Now, when a person is naked, as he says, you've come to see the nakedness of the land, they are completely vulnerable. But what will they do? They'll cover their most private parts at the expense of their more vital parts. And this is what spies look for. The grain and the gold would be protected and this would leave areas open which are actually much more vital, such as the Nile River, which runs right through Egypt or maybe the walls have weaknesses. And this is what he is accusing his brothers of. Instead of coming to buy grain, it's only a ploy to find weaknesses. If they brought many servants along with them, then it would seem all the more probable that they were working as spies as a big group. Our third thought today, bound in prison. This is verses 10 through 17. Verse 10. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. No, that's their answer. The food is the only thing that they're interested in. They aren't walking around on foot in an attempt to find weaknesses. Instead, they've come to simply find food in order to live. They have no other hidden agenda. And to support this, they go along with their explanation. Verse 11. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not. Spies. In their defense, they make what would be otherwise be an absolutely impossible claim. It would be unheard of for ten brothers from the same family to be spies like this. If one of them got caught, then all would get caught, and there'd be no one left to execute the plan. It would be beyond logic for ten brothers to be spies working together at the same time, even if they had other servants that came along with them. Verse 12. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. The wisdom of Joseph is being displayed right here. Instead of accepting their words, which is completely unnecessary, he continues to accuse them. They are ten people, and remember, they're born from three different mothers. Because of this, they would have different features, and so there's no need to accept their words at face value. In order to get them to offer more information, which he knows will be forthcoming, he once again says that they've come to search out the land and all of its weaknesses. Verse 13 And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and in fact, the youngest, is with our father today, and one is no more. To support their claim here, they give information. But in giving this information, they're only going to dig themselves in a little bit deeper. What they think is a full explanation is one which will continue to allow Joseph room to accuse them. They say they're 12 brothers. Well, that's no problem. And then they're sons of one man back in Canaan. That would explain the different looks. Sons of one man implies more than one wife, so no problem there. But then they claim that the youngest is with their father. Now that's a problem. If they had explained why he was with the father, such as if he were too young or he was an invalid or whatever, it would be harder to disbelieve them. But why would one brother of 12 brothers who were all over 35 years of age not be with them? If they were honest people, He'd be needed to buy grain as well. You see the logic there? And finally, they almost morbidly finished their statement saying this in Hebrew. Veha echad enenu. Speaking in what is called an elliptical sentence, they simply say, and the one, no. Now, an elliptical sentence does not mean a sentence with an ellipsis. If you know what an ellipsis is, it's the three dots that supply missing information. That's not an elliptical sentence. An elliptical sentence refers to a sentence with missing information. If you say to me, what is a beard? The complete answer would be, a beard is the fluffy hair on Charlie's face. Okay? That's that's a complete sentence. But an elliptical sentence would be, a fluffy bit of hair on Charlie's face. It leaves off a beard is. So they have this inability to state that Joseph is dead, and they simply say, and the one, no. It is inferred that he's dead, but the inference would be, as Joseph knows all too well, wrong. This is just like Jesus, who is believed to be dead, and yet he's alive. I hope you're starting to see this, and you're starting to make these mental pictures, because they're going to get more and more pronounced as we get towards chapter 44. Verse 14, But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. Because of what they said about Benjamin, not Joseph, he can accuse them again of being spies. They don't look alike. They have made a claim which sounds preplanned, and now they have thrown in more information without any reasonable substantiation for it. However, the truth is that he could look into anything that they say, any situation with complete knowledge, and no matter what they answer, he will be able to find an accusation against them. In this, we have a parallel to Jesus who knows us intimately. There is no place that we can go that he isn't aware of, and there is nothing that we can do that we can hide from him. And I got to tell you what, that brings us perfectly to our prayer life, because Here we are, we're doing things throughout the day, both in our mind and in our actions and maybe in our words that are inappropriate. And when we get to the Lord in prayer at the end of the day, we shouldn't try to hide the things we've done. Like, Lord, you know, I've lived a perfect life today and I thank you for that perfect life that I've lived. Because he already knows the things that we've done wrong. He absolutely does. Or you can make the classic Charlie maneuver and say, Lord, I know I did this thing today, but but well, there is no but with sin we don't justify what we did wrong when we give the butt. so don't pull the charlie maneuver because then what do i have to do i have to then say lord i've just sinned again by trying to justify my sin it's just better to just admit your faults before the lord get them out of the way be restored be cleansed be purified and then go on with your sleep all right or with your other prayers if you have other things on your mind But don't make these errors that Jesus isn't watching every single thing, because he is. The Bible says in the Old Testament, he searches the hearts and minds. Speaking of Jehovah in the book of Isaiah. And it says in the book of Revelation, I am the one who searches hearts and minds, speaking of Jesus. And so there we have this perfect confirmation of Jesus' deity, that he is God incarnate. And there we make more errors by seeing these patterns of Jesus all through the Bible, and yet we deny him his deity and thus we deny our salvation something we should never do he is God incarnate he is our Lord okay keep your prayers simple keep them honest and know that he is there and he has already forgiven you okay verse 15 in this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here now many scholars claim that Joseph doesn't believe them about Benjamin as if they might have killed him too And I want to tell you that is absolutely unreasonable. Put a big X through that one if you have it in your Bible as well. If Benjamin was dead, they would have just simply said he was dead. There's no reason to say otherwise because, you know, they're standing in in front of somebody that they have no idea who he is. Joseph would have every single reason to believe that Benjamin was home with his father. First, the dream that he had before was very specific and he knew that it was from God. Secondly... He would know how important Benjamin was to his father Jacob, now that he's supposing that Joseph is dead. And so he tests them with a vow on the life of Pharaoh. But again, he uses an elliptical. The Hebrew says, life of Pharaoh. So Joseph is either saying, by the life of Pharaoh, or he's saying, as Pharaoh lives. Either way, he's calling on the highest authority in the land as a witness that he now will demand what will come about and the sentence will be executed by by saying this about Joseph, in other words. Verse 16, Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now what Joseph is mandating here in these words would be enough to make the hardest of men groan in terror. They are in dire need for food. And all of their family back in Canaan is as well. There's an entire camp of people who belong to Jacob who need to be fed. And the horrifying thought that maybe Benjamin is going to need to be brought down to Egypt. If Benjamin isn't sent, then they will be doomed to prison and possibly to death. But more so, without Benjamin being sent, there will be no more food to sustain them. All right? Everything is against them at this point. Without Benjamin, meaning the son of the right hand, they have no hope at all. They are as good as dead. Is anybody seeing Jesus in that? Keep paying attention and you're going to see it in a few more sermons. Verse 17, this is our last verse of the day. So we put them all together in prison three days. Once these brothers threw him into a pit and then they sold him off to a foreign land. Now in that foreign land, they are bound in prison at his word. The irony is simply amazing. The Bible has all kinds of ironic circumstances in it, and this is one of the first. It is simply amazing how God deals with us in our lives. It doesn't show why he threw them in prison for three days. It doesn't give us any explanation at all, but we will find out that it is not three full days, okay? And that's important. Any part of a day in the Bible is counted as a full day. We do the same thing in English all the time. If we go on a trip on Monday afternoon and we come back, say, Wednesday about noontime, we're going to say we were gone for three days, when in fact we were gone probably less than two days. But now we've come to the end of this passage, and as I said, it's kind of a cliffhanger. We just got to keep going through it because it's not individual stories. It's one long story that will make a beautiful picture. But we've seen a few examples of how to apply these things to our lives. And we've seen the beginning of some of the pictures of the reconciliation of Israel to their long-estranged Messiah. And with that, the coming of the wondrous period where Christ will, in fact, rule over Jerusalem. But before those things happen, it's our hope that we will be taken out of the world at the rapture. But when Christ comes for his people, and I want you to keep saying this to yourself, when he comes for his people, he is only coming for his people. He's not coming for anybody else. The rest of the world is going to enter into the tribulation period, and most of them will not make it out. In fact, Isaiah says that he's going to make man as rare as fine gold. There's going to be very little left of this world when we get done destroying ourselves. But there is hope for the Christian that we will be taken out of here before that day of the Lord comes. And if you've never considered your standing with God and whether you will be one of those taken out at that time... I hope you will give me just another minute to explain to you how you can be 100% certain that you belong to Jesus Christ and that when he comes, he will come for you. I'll do it very quickly today. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And anybody here that says I've never sinned has never looked into the recesses of their own heart. You know you have. You know that you have violated God's standard and that you are now separated from the Lord. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That wonderful word, but, it keeps coming up every time I say this week after week in my mind that God owes us or we deserve condemnation. He doesn't owe us anything. We deserve condemnation and yet he gives us grace. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And a gift is something you can't earn. You can't say, Jesus, I'm going to do something and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to live by works. You can't do it. It will never be enough to satisfy God. All right? The gift of God. And then he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord is Jesus. And why would we call on the name of the Lord to be saved? It's because Jesus Christ was born without sin. God is his father. He's born into a woman. He inherited no sin from Adam. All right? Then he lived this perfect life Under the law, which the gospels very clearly demonstrate that he lived a life without sinning. That's why the gospels are theirs to show us this. And then he gave up his life on the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary, our sin is transmitted to him. The punishment that we deserve is laid on him. And then the righteousness of that man hanging on that cross is imputed to us. So by faith, the only way we can receive it is by saying, I believe that he did this for me. And all of your sins will be cast away behind God's back as far as it is from the east to the west. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God will take away your guilt and he will give you his son's righteousness. And to prove that this happened, he came out of the grave. Well, how does that prove it? Because the wages of sin is death. If he came back to life, then he had no sin of his own. And all of the sin that you had transferred to the cross is simply washed away by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see the marvel of what God has done for us. Don't turn it down. Accept Jesus Christ. Just call on him and say, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. And I want to have eternity in your presence. And someday the trumpet is going to blow. And we're going to be taken out of here. And the world is going to go into a tailspin. And all of this is being pictured in Genesis so that we don't make the error. That we have replaced Israel. And that we have this easy life ahead of us until we usher in the kingdom. God has a plan for Israel, and if he has a plan for Israel, then he has a plan to get us out of here before that occurs, okay? Trust the Lord Jesus. Here's our closing verse for today. It's Zechariah chapter 10. Talk about the Lord coming for us and how certain these things are and how wonderful he is and how faithful he is to the people of Israel. Listen to these words. I will strengthen the house of Judah. This is speaking of the future. This has never been done in the past, so here we go. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside for I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Wonderful stuff from God. Isn't that wonderful? Here we go. Uh, Next week's sermon will be Genesis 42 verses 18 through 28. What's that? 11 verses. It's called the Lord provides the grain. Today was the giver of the grain. Today is the Lord or next week is the Lord provides the grain. Okay. I would like to tell you this before you uh, we finish up with our uh, weekly poem, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you, so call on him and let him do marvelous things both for you and through you, all right? Our poem today is called There is Grain in Egypt, and for the people that have never been here before, I started with Genesis 1-1, and I've taken our passages that we look at each week, and I put them into a poem. So that very soon we'll have a whole poem of the book of Genesis and it'll help you to memorize maybe or whatever. But here we go. This is Genesis uh, 42, one through 17. When Jacob saw that there in Egypt was grain, Jacob then said to his son said, why do you look at another again and again? What kind of thoughts are there in your head? And he said, indeed, I have heard that in Egypt there is grain. Go down to that place to delay would be absurd and buy food for us there, our lives to maintain that we may live and not die. It may be a long shot, but at least let us try. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt without further descent. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with with them, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed too, for the famine was in the land of Canaan so dry, going to Egypt was the right thing to do. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all to the people and by his command to all the people, great and small. And Joseph's brothers came and before him bowed down with their faces to the earth, to the man in Egypt of great renown. Joseph saw his brothers, yes, his eyes were attracted and recognized them right away. But to them as a stranger, he acted and spoke roughly to them and surely to their dismay. Then he said to them in a manner shrewd, from where do you come? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Would you please sell us some? So Joseph, his brothers, he recognized, but to them he remained disguised. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which them he had dreamed about and said to them, You are spies. You've come to search us out. You have come to see the nakedness of the land to surely search us out. This I understand. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. Please hear the truth now in our word. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men, faithful and true your servants are not spies. It's not something that we would ever do. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land and if attacked, whether we would succumb. And they said, 12, your servants are brothers, the, mans of, the sons of one man. In the land of Canaan, we have traveled far only to feed our family is our hopeful plan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no more. Truthful words are the words we say. But Joseph to them said, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies instead. Watch your words, with fire you are playing. In this manner tested you shall be by the life of Pharaoh, my words thus sincere. You shall not leave this place ever, you see, unless your youngest brother comes down here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and shall be kept in prison each of you, that your words may be tested in this thing, to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else by Pharaoh's life, surely your spies come to bring us strife. So he put them all together in prison three days. They awaited their fate under the guard's gaze. Jesus was three days in the prison of death, so cold. But he prevailed over it because in him no sin was found. And now we can be released from death's strong hold. By calling on him, eternal life will abound. Let us make the right choice while our time is on our side. We know not the number of our days. So let us turn away from our sin and pride and call on Jesus and to God give resounding praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this beautiful unfolding picture of how merciful you are to your people who have turned so far away from you. And it's not just Israel. We can't point a finger at them and say how bad they are because each one of us turns from you day by day. And every day you graciously call us back to yourself and you allow us to repent and to uh, get on our knees before you and be cleansed once again. And we have the sure, sure hope of eternal salvation because of the work of Jesus Christ. Then I pray that soon Israel will open its eyes and that they will receive that. And as a nation, they will call on you so that he can return, can reign among them, and you will be glorified through that marvelous period in earth's history. Lord, I would pray for each person here today if there's anything in their hearts or in their lives which is causing them difficulties or trials or troubles that you would be with them and help them. And the people that are traveling back to their homes, please help them as they do and uh, just take care of each need and uh, uh, just be glorified in our lives. Help us to remember to turn around and give you the praise that you're due after all the abundant blessings you give us from day to day. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you. All hail the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.